This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations of people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I'm joined from Whakatane by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. One sleep till Christmas. Oh my gosh. And my house smells like jam. <laughs> it's like you celebrate Christmas with all those beautiful berries that are growing everywhere at the moment. I made a huge batch of blackberry and blueberry jam today. Such a nice smell. The smell of Christmas. The smell of Christmas. And who are we introducing for our Christmas show? It is an absolutely great pleasure to welcome back Dr. Andy Williamson. Andy is described as a global leader in democratic innovation and civic participation. He's a thinker, a writer and a change maker. And when Sam and I were discussing who did we want to have as our Christmas special, uh, we both agreed immediately that that was Andy. So welcome, Andy. It's a real joy to have you back with us today. Thank you. And kia ora, both of you. It's nice to be here. Kia ora, Andy. So I can remember where you are, Andy, but our listeners probably can't. Where are you? I'm on Antreelenskernach, which is the Isle of Skye in the far northwest of Scotland. And it's dark and misty and cloudy, even though it's, well, shouldn't be. It's the <laughs> shortest day today. And how is Christmas time in on? I'm not even going to pretend that I could pronounce how you did it. The Isle of Skye. It is dark and cold and misty. It's um, it's the depths of winter, and this is um, this is what's called in Gaelic the dark month. So this is our shortest shortest month, shortest days, and um, the, it doesn't really change that much through the month. Once you get the sun up the top and about to tip over, or at the bottom and about to tip back, it changes very slowly. So we've got about six hours of daylight through uh, most of most of December and January. And um, we're, we're just getting ready for Christmas. It's very festive. I went out the other day and chopped down a tree from the, the, the plantation, and that's now installed upstairs. So it's starting to look festive, ready for Christmas Eve. And um, I'm Santa and his reindeer, and of course, the Christmas badgers to arrive as well. That um, With the world of commercialization, there's too much for reindeer to do. So in across the nation, badgers have been enlisted. They wear fluorescent vests and work-safe boots, and they carry parcels and presents around as well i believe so legend has it is that a legend in your house or is it a legend wider than that i think it's a legend entirely in my own head but i'm convincing <laughs> oren that it's true so how old is oren now he's going to be four in mid-january so he's at that age now where these things are starting to have some significance and he's very excited and has been counting down for a while um, two advent calendars on the go just to double check and make sure we've not been cheating him on it so is he he's not he's not at school yet 
He is at um, our equivalent of nursery, what we call scolari, uh, which is Gallic medium nursery. So it's and it's in the school. So what's really lovely about it is he spends two years in nursery before going to school. But he knows the school and he knows the teachers and he knows all the kids because it's a small community. Um, so it's a really nice transition. And he is loving it. And he's got um, they do things like they've got a beach at the school. So that once a week they go down to the beach and they do bicycle day and they do cooking and baking. It's fantastic. When I visited your house in where was it glasgow when he was very little the house was covered with stickers because you were learning gaelic how's that going um that's it's going pretty well for some of us oran is probably the most fluent <laughs> gaelic speaker in the house because he's immersed in it and occasionally he'll ask me things and then he'll tell me that i'm wrong and um or he'll correct me he has corrected alison's grammar before now alison's actually with the pandemic she decided to take some time off from um music and concerts and things because they're quite difficult or weren't happening and so she's been doing a, a full-time gallic grammar course so hers is pretty good i'd say conversationally um good mine's pretty pretty adequate and inadequate and rubbish because i spend my life sitting in here talking to people all around the world in english and french and spanish and things so i don't get to use it as much are there recognizable gallic christmas traditions so we could go into a whole deep conversation that Mawera is going to find really interesting about um, uh, colonialism, colonization and the destruction of indigenous culture. Um, because uh, no, and in some ways not. There are little things and um, there, are, there, there are very strong Gallic traditions and culture and, and things moving in. But the, the Gallic culture and language was destroyed by English and the English in a way and the Anglified Scots. It was seen after the um, to the defeat of the Jacobites. It was seen as inferior, and um, you shouldn't be doing it. And so, you know, you move into the whole debate about the clearances, where the the, the local indigenous population of Scotland was cleared off the land and shipped around the world, so a few wealthy landowners could profit out of sheep. And with it, the the, the language and the culture was lost. So. Um, this this is a culture, if you think of, in a way, New Zealand was like 40 years ago, where it was just white Anglo-Saxon, if you like. Effectively, that's how a lot of it feels here. But there are resurgences, and certainly around where I live, 50% of the population speaks Gaelic, which is significant. It's, it, it's a significant language, and we have a, a university that teaches only in Gaelic, and we have the school which teaches first in Gaelic and has an English unit for, for some students. So, yeah, there's a whole history of, um, really, it's, it's a post-colonial situation, uh, but are not recognised as such. I was going to say, are they using that language? Yes, the language is used. All of our signs are in English and Gaelic. You can, one of the tricks is everybody will default to English because you, there's a lot of tourists here. So there's no point speaking to people in Gaelic. But if you do, if you say hello or you introduce yourself in Gaelic or you, you know, someone in the shop speaks in Gaelic, then people know it's kind of like a, a Masonic handshake. You then know, ah, oh, I can switch, I can switch to Gaelic. Um, and it's it's strong. It's, it's just, there's a real sense of the music and the the the, the literature and the culture of it. Um, and, and an interesting thing occurred to me that in terms of Scotland, the patron saint of Scotland is St. Andrew, who, you know, wasn't exactly a bloke who went around wearing a kilt. And he's also the patron saint of Ukraine. 
it's not really any great resonance with here. Um, whereas actually, the, the 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 person you'd look to in terms of the history of Christianity in Scotland is Colum Keelis and Columba, but he came through the West up from Ireland through the west coast of Scotland, and the Gallic nation of Scotland spread out from there, but was eventually destroyed. And the history of it has been wiped away. I think yeah. after the, or perhaps during the the COP, the, the climate change summit in Glasgow, I think one of the delegates of Pacifica delegate or someone from the Pacific said something about, used the, the framing of colonisation. Did, 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 that resonate or was that sort of like a well that doesn't apply to us obviously i don't think it resonated anywhere beyond a few people it certainly resonated with me but but i think um i think my experience of aotearoa and the pacific gives me that lens that i can look at it from a post-colonial point of view and i can see the 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 oppression of the colonizer and what it does and and how actually how actually it it's a loss for the, the the colonizer it's you know it's a loss for new zealand to not have maori culture and language it's it's a loss for scotland not to have gallic culture and language this is you know this is not it, everywhere you go you know whether it's new zealand or wales or scotland there are a certain group of of, of white anglo-saxon people largely who are scared of indigenous language and culture and and i can't understand it i can't i just i cannot there's th most things i can i can spin my head around and see your point of view but this one i can't why are you scared of it what do you lose by by accepting something else you know you gain from it it's it's crazy it's absolute it it's absolute stupidity because you're missing out on so much. I mean, you know, if I look out from here, if I look out from my window, I'm looking out, well, if it wasn't for so misty and cloudy, I'd be looking out on some mountains. Every one of those mountains has a name in Gaelic. And um, right in front of me is a mountain called Ken Nagor, which if you just see it on a map and you don't understand the language means nothing. What it means to me is a rocky slope where the goats used to climb up. It's very descriptive. And so um, there's, you know, there's a, a river up, up the road called Ochnashian, and that is the river of the fairies, and that has some significance. So, I all of these things are useful geographic references. And if you're lost, it's quite happy to know what you know, quite useful to know what the name of the mountain means because it's I'm, often very descriptive. I'm reading a book by Michael Bond, um, called I've forgotten what it's called, something like Getting Lost and Found Again, which explores that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm only disappointed that Paddington hasn't turned up in the book yet. I was going to say, didn't he write Paddington? And I thought, I must be a different one. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's a different one. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Human League, Don't You Want Me. Now, last year, you gave us a whole pile of Gaelic classical music. This is not that. Why this one? Indeed, it isn't. No. Um, this is me being um, old and sentimental. This was number one in the UK 40 years ago at Christmas. And actually, it's part of the soundtrack of my my growing up. You know, this was the thing we had at, at school parties and things. It's it, and and I hadn't heard it for ages. And I heard it the other day and thought that's so distinctive. You just that opening few bars of it, you just instantly know it. So I thought this is a good one to have for Christmas. By the way, it wasn't number one in New Zealand. Howard Morrison's "How Great Thou Art" was number one in New Zealand at the same time.
we are celebrating because it's Christmas. I just would like to take this moment to, to celebrate with you and with Mawera the fact that she is all but walking across the stage short of being called Dr. Karatai. I know, and it's great. Congratulations. And it's such a journey, isn't it? It's life-changing. It has been. It's been an extraordinary journey, and I um, I still just can't believe that I finally got it done. And I think, I don't know that I would have got it done if it wasn't for this show, because when Sam, when I talked to Sam every single day for two years, <laughs> you can't hide from the fact that you need to write something. <laughs> so, yeah, quite a lot to be thankful for. I think it's, yeah, it's a fantastic journey, isn't it? I mean, it's not just about a, a certificate at the end of this. In fact, it's nothing to do with a certificate at the end of it. It's actually the journey that you go on to really dive into something that, uh, you know, when we do this as mature students, it's something that we're passionate about. Yeah. It's not a ticket. It's a, it's a passion. And it's so life-changing and so important. And, the, and when you reflect back to where you started and where you are, I don't recognise myself. I don't recognise even myself in my old writing. And some things I read, I think, well, where, where was I in that place to, to be thinking that way? It's, um, it's been an incredibly liberating experience. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it, it is, isn't it? I mean, it's, and don't be critical of what you used to write. Recognise it as the, as, as the process. Um, you know, we, we, we write, rewrite, change our minds. I have a, a friend who's a, an emeritus professor, and she said the thing she hates most is when she sees someone make a really rubbish argument using her research that she's decided was wrong 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, we change our minds. That's what it's about. We learn new things. Things change, we change. And it's that, you know, actually seeing that journey. And that's where this show is so interesting, because there's there's such a fascinating social historical record of a period in time. It is. And um, one actually, one of the um, most amazing people I came across in the work was Bell Hooks. And of course, we lost her mm. last week. And I, I feel ripped off to, you know, finally have, you know, had never heard her at all, never heard of her. And one of our colleagues introduced her, uh, her work to me and, um, and it changed so much of the way that I viewed things. And I never got the opportunity to ever sort of make contact with her and talk to her about that impact. And um, but um, but love and the need for love and the the cost of the absence of love, real yeah. love, love as a doing rather than a saying. That's, and it makes uh, you... that's where I've landed. Yeah. And, it, and Bell Hooks makes you think that as a practitioner, as an academic, we do everything for just reasons of economy or, or academic need, whatever, not for love, not for sharing, not for community. And actually, if you, if you take what Bell Hooks said and you look at it in terms of um, Kaupapa, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. It totally turns around how we focus on what we do and why we do it. Mm. And she, she is an amazing woman. I mean, it's a, yeah, I think this is this is why writing is so important because she is gone but actually that message is there it, it doesn't change and you have to be ready for it because it's a powerful message i'm talking, glad that i had that opportunity talking about writing and working what have you been up to andy oh i've been way too busy crazy crazy times um too much to do too many people want to fix democracy and um yeah too many people getting in the way of it happening. Um, I've been I've been doing a lot of work with parliaments, just trying to grasp the enormity of the last eighteen months, almost two years. Um, you know, the the level of innovation, the pace of innovation that we've been working on in the last eighteen months is phenomenal, and it's exhausting. Um, just trying to 
map everything, hold everything together. Um, and then working with uh, individual parliaments on looking at how they, they, they do modernization and transformation strategies. You know, we're not seeing parliament as a stuffy old building that a few old duffers go into couple of times a week and decide on their own what they want for their mates doesn't work like that anymore it's open you can see it they get parliamentarians are getting younger politicians are getting younger you know just this week the, the the new chilean president is 35 and you have to be i think it is the minimum age is 35 to stand for president it is phenomenal we're seeing a, a shift and so we have to we have to see a shift not just in society but in how parliamentary institutions work we talk a lot in Europe about deliberative process, and there's a, a real fashion for citizens' assemblies. But just hang on a second. What's a parliament if it isn't a citizens' assembly? And if we don't recognise it as that, then there's something wrong with our mindset around how our democracy works. It shouldn't be a club for the, the business round table or the, on the other side, the trade unions. It should be a representative body for everybody. You know, our parliaments have to look and feel like we do. Albeit, you know, with standing and importers. But um, yes, yeah, so we're doing a lot of work around how do we make them more open and accessible and work better? How do we get people in there? How do we get them out? Um, how do we run them virtually? How, you know, how could we do a parliamentary sitting in a country like Brazil when we can't be physically there? And um, it turns out you can, all with are modern we, technology. Are we seeing the impossible made possible? Are, are we seeing things that two years ago, there was no way that was ever going to happen, but it's happened um i wouldn't say it was never going to happen because it was always going to happen in terms of you if you think of the evolution of technology but it certainly wasn't going to happen in anyone's on anyone's watch at that time there was no real need or demand or desire to take risks with the technology and and the one thing the pandemic has done is it's it's forced us to take risks because without them we wouldn't be able to pass laws and it's it's changed the appetite for risk, which is really, really interesting because that's that's one of the big barriers to doing stuff is we're just scared it'll fail or we don't understand it or we don't trust it. So that uh, fear of technology, distrust of, of what it's doing has had to be overcome very quickly um, with some intense work, I guess. We've had to we've had to work hard to do that uh, and put the tools in place. And the tools aren't that complicated, really. Uh, but the security is challenging. When we talked when I was in Glasgow before you moved to the Isle of Skye, I think you, I asked you to score on a scale of one to 10, you know, the health of democracy. And I think you came up with a low number and, and said that it was broken. And would the, I asked, would the things that people are working on be the transformational shift that, that needed to happen? And you said, not a chance. Have we seen that transformational shift that perhaps we didn't expect? So yes, in one side of it and no in another. So we haven't, I don't think we've seen any transformational shift in terms of the public's relationship with parliaments and democracy. And there are some, well, actually, if we have, it's gone the wrong way. But for that's, that's another reason, depends where you are a little bit. Um, in terms of parliament, just speaking specifically about parliaments, which is my area. Uh, yeah, we have, as parliaments have had to grasp a lot of stuff in the last 18 months that, um, you know, a colleague in the Irish Parliament said we've done five years of innovation in five months. And that's hard because also you had staff who were away. Uh, so we've had to completely pivot the way that parliaments work. The New Zealand Parliament has gone from about 25% of people who did flexible working to about 90%. 
And they've also, you know, we've seen parliaments move from, it's a traditional public sector IT procurement model is very much the old waterfall thing. You know, you start with a spec, you put it out, get, get a bid and you do this. And you end up with these massive monolithic projects that cost a fortune and go to these rubbish big consultancies who cream off the money and fail to deliver. You know, there's a, a well-established pattern of them. And they always over-engineer and underperform, and these things are rubbish and they take years. And actually, we can't do that in the middle of a pandemic. We just need the damn thing to work. So they've had to pivot to an agile model, um, and which has been really interesting. So you know, the New Zealand Parliament is one example of this, where they've had to do things really quickly. But in the background, their project reporting model is still based on this whole waterfall thing. So there's still further changes to do on the culture within Parliament to be able to, to do things in a more agile way. Uh, and that is changing. You know, seeing Brazil now, that's and Chile, Chile in particular, the Chilean parliament very much about agile working, the iterative approach. Um, and it, we wouldn't have been talking about that at all two years ago. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokadui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha mui, kia koutou, kotahoho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. And I really hope wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here making things better. Thank you. Now I know that for all of us we've been through a very stressful, potentially our whole lives, and in fact being human, being alive, having our consciousness, having our inherited predisposition towards evaluative thought can be troublesome at times. And I'm sure all life experiences problems to be overcome and solved and this is the nature of life and in many ways we experience pain and suffering and in many ways we experience joy and bliss and satisfaction and freedom and learning as a result of a mixture of all of these different parts of ourselves coming together as we know at this time of year, we are attempting to celebrate a long held tradition of coming together and celebrating our unique gifts by sharing gifts together that honor and reflect who we are. And of course, as a species, this has taken place in many ways all throughout time and space. And at this time, in this space, we can say the name we have given Christmas Eve. And there's a great hullabaloo and sense of excitement in the air, a sense of expectation and suspension, a sense of gratification withheld or gratification expectantly looked forward to with great excitement. And I know for myself, having this time with my whānau and my friends is very special. We're hoping to have some time at the night shelter and we're hoping to support some people 
in our hōpari who don't have the same support networks perhaps as everybody else at this time of year so a really wonderful time of coming together despite so many changes and shifts and challenges this year for me I love the imagery of new life coming into the world of course working and being so privileged to work in the living world as we all do but for me I feel so grateful that it's so direct for me it's so rich and potent and and real and available and constant and unceasing in its presence and inspiration in my life of course at Orokonui we're so lucky to have welcomed two baby takahe countless baby other native life forms including potato orchids and kaka and it is a time of great fecundity and fertility a verdant landscape of pleasure and recognition when we see those we once loved and knew and those we meet and love again for the first time so I really hope for you on this Christmas Eve you're looking forward to of course unwrapping your presents but of course in a very obvious and beautiful way unwrapping and enjoying the many layers of presents of those you love in your life whether you're near or far whether your mother is on the other side of the world whether you're remembering those who have journeyed far beyond our physical realm but are still with us in our hearts. However you're celebrating the presence of love in your life, I really hope that you really enjoy this time when all those things that we look forward to that have been heralded to us, that we have seen the signs and symbols for, are now coming into fruition for us to so gratefully enshrine and protect and nurture for the rest of our lives. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Andy Williamson. Andy, we talked a while ago to Rob England about various things, but he was talking about VUCA, the, the volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. As we move to that that ongoing disruption kind of environment, are democracies ready for that? Can they cope with that? No. No, how are they going to cope with it? The, you mean, if you had the right kind of democracy that was flexible and responsive and actually was democratic, then yeah, it probably could. But yeah, let's take the UK as, an, as a good case study here. Um, it, it's, it's incredulous. And the, the state of democracy in the UK, thanks to one party and its mates in the media and big business, is absolutely astonishing. It's you can't even describe the UK government and their ministers as incompetent because that would be being nice to people who are incompetent. <laughs> they they are they 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 are beyond incompetent. You have a prime minister who clearly is incapable. Who hasn't everything is about him and his ego. He's there as a puppet. He certainly isn't there because of his ability. And when you're mediocre, you can't appoint good people because they show you up. So what we have in the UK is a cabinet of incompetence, a cabinet of absolute idiots, and they're not fit to govern. And, and that's not a party political point. I've never seen this from both sides. There are many conservative ministers in the past, some I, I know, 
who are extremely competent and very decent people. And I don't agree with them politically. And the same on the Labour side. I might not agree with them politically, but I know that they're competent and I could put them in charge. And I might not like what they want to do, but I trust them to do it well and for the good of of, of everybody, or, or at least for, they perceive it that way. But I can't say that with this government. They are... Last week, the government, the party of government voted against um, COVID vaccine passports in the UK. And to quote one of them, it's because we're not Nazi Germany and we don't have to carry an ID card around with us. We won't be doing that. Whereas a couple of weeks earlier, they voted for a law that requires ID to go and vote. Now, how is that different? It's it's. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a cognitive dissonance in this whole thing. And clearly the difference is one of them is benefiting you as a party because you know that you're going to disenfranchise the um, the lower end of the voting market, as it were. The theme of this show is positive but not deluded. How do you, being aware of all the, the, the craziness that's going on in different places, how do you maintain that... I don't know if balance is how you would describe it, but your, your framework in terms of that positivity. So you have to accept that you're working in an asylum and that most of the inhabitants of it are lunatic and you can't fix them all. So you have to narrow your focus and you have to look for small moments of change because you can't do any more. If you try and do any more, you will be simply overwhelmed by the task in front of you. You know, I can't fix democracy. I can't fix British democracy. I can't fix fix Scottish democracy. I can't fix Georgian or Ukrainian democracy. But what I can do is little bits here and there. So I can do a little thing which just strengthens the wall a little bit. And that's all that you can do. But if we all do that one little thing, then maybe it is cumulative and we can fix. Um, And I think one of the things that we can do is actually we have to say that politics for personal self-interest or the self-interest of a very small group is not acceptable. And, you know, we really do need to look at Chile at the moment. Chile had a presidential election between someone from the far right and someone from originally the far left, very far left. And what he did was he, he moderated a lot of his policy in the final round of the election and got the mo- most votes anyone has ever got in a Chilean presidential election. Now, Chile is interesting because we're coming from the, the days of military dictatorship and Pinochet. This is, you know, this is a fascist dictatorship. And one of the things he said is neoliberalism was born in Chile and it will die here because he wants a country that is there for everyone. And neoliberalism is whatever we call it, whatever its its offspring are, whatever on earth we're seeing in the UK. And frankly, I think we've just gone crazy. I think it's madness. It's not even, you know, a neoliberal economist wouldn't recognise what's going on in the UK. It's so extreme. Um, But those things are not for the benefit of the people. And we have a media that still thinks it needs to tell people to vote for these people who are doing nothing for anyone except the owners of the newspaper. You know, the New Zealand Herald, a good example, is it's an appalling newspaper. It really should not be allowed to go unquestioned. It's not it, It's not open and honest in its views. It doesn't print honest news. It filters through its lens. Very, very biased. And until we can give people a much more open and honest view of what's, what's happening and why it's happening and say, hang on, if you vote for these guys, you might think this sounds good, but they ain't your friends. They're not doing it for you. You might get a little benefit out of it because they do that here and there. You know, they'll drop you a little bone. But you're the dog. You're not the master. You're not. It's not being done for you. And, and, and we have to educate. We have to educate, educate, educate. Critical thinking. Why are they doing this? 
Why are they doing this? Where's it coming from? Who's behind it? You know, if you can see them, they don't have real power. So who's behind them? Where's it coming from? And, and that's, that's the big challenge. We've got to open up those big questions. I am instead going to open up the next of your music choices. I am Clute to the brink. Why this one? Um, it's, it's one of those songs that when it comes on, I think I'm a writer and I like words. And um, when I listen to the words of this, they're funny and clever and familiar. And it's about a sort of to and fro from the pub. It's uh, and it's just a lovely song. It's a really, it's a really nice song. And it's one of those ones that I listen to and it stops me in my tracks every time it comes on because I want to hear it. And the music and the words just work so well. So no other reason than it's a really good song. That's a good reason. Do you fancy a drink? I know a place called The Brink. If you wanna go there I can buzz off your smile And there may be people you know there They've got no rule of thumb So on the counter I strum with my fingers I adore the surprise Tomorrow's sunrise So I'll linger A smile or two This stuff strips the light From your bones So I would, I would Like to stay with you But I The guy on the bus Who's not quite one of us You hear laughter And they won't let you in Cause everyone knows what you're after So you wear the disguise Of your brilliant eyes Drenched in flamboyance Sit by the bar Much to everyone else's annoyance I raise a glass A smile or two The stuff strips the lights From your Bye. 
Wendy, there's so much heaviness going on and, oh, my gosh, it can weigh us down, all of the um, the challenges that we have ahead of us. But where is hope for you? What are you seeing that's good? What's working? Community, lots of community. You know, the one thing pandemic has done is community. Um, I live in a small community and you know, we've just been sick and one of our neighbours took Orem for a few hours. Um, it's been hard walking the dog when you've got a chest infection. Few of the neighbours have been taking the dog out. Things, yeah. People share. People do things. People come together. Um, we we share. We share food. We share experiences. We share our lives. I think that's that's where it is. It's at you know, the 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 hope is at the heart of of the community. It's the heart of what we do. Um, if we start focusing on the big stuff, on pandemics and incompetent politicians and dodgy legislation and and the nastiness of Brexit and all the rest of it. You know, if we think about Scott Morrison, oh, geez, what do we do? Um, let's not. Let's think about our neighbours and our family and our communities and let's build up from there. You know, one community gels with the next community. That's that's where it is. And, you know, one thing I'm really missing at the moment is Christmas and we don't have Pahutakawa, but they're still flowering. You know, I see pictures from friends and family back in Aotearoa and the, the Pahutakawa are flowering and it's beautiful. And here it's, you know, it's dark and misty and thoughtful and we have lights everywhere because it brightens the place up. And that's it. It's about light. Where are the points of light? Let's focus on the points of light. And they're little things. Um, you know, I have a nearly four-year-old who is so excited about the Christmas lights and Christmas and the prospect of, of what's happening and so many questions. You know, apparently four-year-olds ask 570 questions a day, and I'm sure it's more than that. <laughs> and that's that's where the hope is. It's when we, we can actually see it through that lens rather than the, the big macro depressing lens of everything going wrong. But I think the big hope as well is we just have to stop accepting it. We have to stop saying, oh, it's okay. It's not about us. This is just how it is. No, it's not how it is. We, we can change it. We can change it. So 2022 is about changing it, about us all figuring out that together from the grassroots, we can change it. We're so lucky here in Aotearoa, we've got um, an, a great leader in Jacinda and that messaging around um, be kind and care for each other has been the reason why we've got such high vaccination rates because we're not just vaccinating for ourselves, we're vaccinating for everybody. And I love that about this place where we still put everyone else at the at the forefront of, of what we're doing and why we do it. Is there any glimpse of that in your wider community? While it's a, it's overt in your local community, is there a glimpse of it in the wider community? Oh, yeah, you would recognise Scotland. Scotland is a social democracy. Um, our First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, is exactly like that. She's um, she's fantastic. You know, she's fronted up day in, day out through the pandemic. There's no cheese and wine on the on the deck at Downing Street. It's, you know, she's been slogging through this and she's been talking about we doing this for all of us. You know, we're not doing this for ourselves. We don't wear masks for ourselves. We wear masks for others. We're vaccinated. We, Scotland has the highest vaccination rate in the UK. And we're already um, over 50 percent of our booster vaccinations. And we're aiming to be, I think, 80 or 90 percent by um, by the new year. So, you know, we're, we're way up there. We're doing, I thought it was, I think it was something like 70,000 booster vaccinations today. So we're on it. I had mine done a couple of weeks ago by the Royal Marines. Now, this is a, literally a military operation. So, yeah, there is, Scotland has community. I mean, it has its naysayers. It has the negative. You know, the political opposition will always find something to whine about because that's what you have to do. And I feel sorry for them, really, because you have to, don't you? It's your job. But it just becomes a bit tedious. And the government has, you know, it's not done everything perfectly. It's made mistakes. It's 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 done a, a few missteps. But, you know, who wouldn't in this situation? But the Scottish government is, you know, I feel really, 
really lucky to be in Scotland, not in England at this time, because we have real leadership. And, and just like Jacinda, we have a, a leader who is a, about the people, caring about the people. Whether you agree with her politics or not, you can't argue that she's been a brilliant communicator and has been about the people. I have some questions to end the show with and not very much time, so we shall have to wriggle through them. Andy, what is the biggest success you've had in the last year? I think it's getting so many parliaments to work together. We have achieved a a network of parliaments that have been working and sharing selflessly for 18 months. But this year it's really come together. So we now have, yeah, we have a really, really good group, a core of about 45 parliaments who are um, sharing and talking and, and doing stuff and learning from each other. And I think that that peer learning is so important in institutions as well as people. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in our team. What's the superpower that got you into the mansion? I think you asked me this before, and I said it's about process. I think what I see is process. I'm, I'm good at systemic change. I can't necessarily make it happen, but I can see the problems. Um, I've never been one to follow the rules, and I realise that Oren is exactly the same. He questions it and spins it around and looks at it and then does it his way. Uh, and I think that's a real superpower. Actually, don't accept what's there. Question it. Redesign it. Make it better. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? No, no. I'm, I'm, I think that's an honour that's for people that are actually out there doing it. My work at the moment curtails me doing anything too vocal and public. I have to, I, I have to work on the inside. So I can be an activist on the inside. I can, I can create change on the inside, but I have to do it very slowly and subtly. Whereas I think the real definition of an activist is someone who's on the outside shouting and doing the hard work. It's, I wouldn't say it's easier to do it on the inside, but it's comfier. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? The dog leaping on me. He's very large and his very large paws and he leaps on you and licks you. So you have to get out of bed. But once I've once I've got over the dog stage, um, it is that, OK, today we might just create that one small change. We might just lift someone's thinking from I can't to I can. And I think every time you have that little success, that's tick. You know, it's hard to see individually, but cumulatively they they definitely add up. And I think if we can, you know, if once a day, once a week, somebody has a little switch goes off and says, hey, I could do this. And if I've been in any way responsible for that, that's that's a success. What's the biggest challenge you're looking forward to in the next year? There is so much to do. There is so much to research and write about and think about and form a position on um, how we move parliaments forward, but also a wider, the deliberative space. And I'm doing a piece of work at the moment around framing uh, regulations for deliberative democracy. And it's a flavor of the month and it's a naive flavor of the month. And what I want to do is actually put a really critical stamp on it. And instead of just going, yeah, we need to do citizens assemblies, I need, I, I my challenge for the, certainly the first half of next year is to come up with a way of saying, this is how these deliberative models fit into a representative democracy that we already have and know we need to change, but we're not going to throw it away. So how are they going to dovetail into it so that they have value? Because at the moment, most deliberative things go off with a big set of fireworks and then no, nothing happens. They're just pushed under the carpet. Nothing happens. How do we actually channel those uh, citizens assembly into legislative processes so that they have some impact? And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? have a really good Christmas and take some time off 
and enjoy the summer and go to the beach. It's going to be hard. 2022 is going to be hard. You have not hit the next wave of COVID. You are going to. You can't avoid it. You know, I'm looking at the figures here and we have exponential growth. You cannot avoid it unless you fully close the borders. You're you're not going to avoid it. So enjoy this because you're probably going to get it. Oh, who knows the way it's going, but um, it's going to get worse before it gets better. So while you can enjoy it. Now, looking at your bookshelf behind you, which I can see, but the listeners can't. So I'll describe two things. One of them is I really like the ordnance survey maps that you have. And secondly, the Mammoth steam engine. I'm sitting here imagining that that is a Christmas present from years gone by. Um, you'd be almost right in that I did have a, when I was little, I did have a Mammoth traction engine, which was a Christmas present from my uncle. And we used to race it around the kitchen floor. I remember this. And then um, many years ago, I, uh, I built one for a friend's son. And from the parts I had, I had two or three scrappy ones and I built them into one good one. Um, and I built a second one for me, which is that one up there, which has got a slightly leaky boiler, but it just does remind me of it. And it's really interesting that you chose the uh, traction engine, Sam, because there's another steam-powered device up there. And before you came on the call, Marewa and I were talking, and she said, what is that silver thing behind you? And it's an old 1950s Italian espresso machine, which is also steam-powered and works and has a yeah, maybe a slightly leaky boiler as well. So there's a theme on my <laughs> shelf is leaky boilers. <laughs> Well, I don't like coffee, but I do have a mammoth steam engine that looks quite a lot like that one in the, on the shelf next door. And it does, it does work. I do need to fire it up. I keep promising to get it going for Oren. That would be a good Christmas activity. Moira. Andy, you said before about Oren and his questions. I can promise you that even when Oren's 12, you will still get that many questions every day. They will just be way more complicated. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and do you know what? That's my wish for you is that you um, always have that same enjoyment of all those questions because it, it, the time goes so fast and the questions are, um, the way they evolve, there's so much joy in that. And so this year that's coming, as Oren then just changes over to, you know, a new level of school and, and as the world around us changes, um, our wish for you is joy and peace and happiness and thank you for the work that you do. It matters so much. Kia ora. Awesome. Kira, thank you, Maroa. And I'm just saying to you guys, have a really good Christmas and enjoy what you have. Thank you. Day one. Dear Nola, thank you very much for your lovely present of a partridge in a pear tree. We're getting the hang of feeding the partridge now, although it was difficult at first to win its confidence. It bit the mother rather badly in the hand, but they're good friends now, and we're keeping the pear tree indoors in a bucket. Thank you again. Yours affectionately, Gubnet O'Lunacy. Day two. Dear Nola, I cannot tell you how surprised we were to hear from you so soon again and to receive your lovely present of two turtle doves. You really are too kind. At first, the partridge was very jealous and suspicious of the doves and they had a terrible row on the night the doves arrived. We had to send for the vet. But the birds are okay again and the stitches is due to come out in a week or two. The vet's bill was £8, but the mother is over her annoyance now and the doves and the partridge are watching the telly from the pear tree as I write. Yours ever, Gobnet. Day three. Dear Nola, we must be foremost in your thoughts. I had only posted my letter when the three French hens arrived. There was another sort out between the hens and the doves who sided with the partridge, and the vet had to be sent for again. The mother was raging because the bill was £16 this time, but she has almost cooled down. However... The fact that the bird's droppings keep falling down on her hair while she's watching the telly doesn't help matters. 
thanking you for your kindness, I remain your governor. Day 4. Dear Nola, you mustn't have received my last letter when you were sending us the four calling boards. There was pandemonium in the pear tree again last night, and the vet's bill was £32. The mother is on sedation as I write. I know you meant no harm, and remain your close friend, Gobnet. Day 5. Nola, your generosity knows no bounds. Five gold rings! When the parcel arrived, I was scared stiff that it might be more boards, because the smell in the living room is atrocious. However, I don't want to seem ungrateful for the beautiful rings. Your affectionate friend, Gubnet. Day 6. Nola, what are you trying to do to us? It isn't that we don't appreciate your generosity, but the six geese have not alone nearly murdered the Colin birds, but they laid their eggs on top of the vet's head from the pear tree, and his bill was £68 in cash. My mother is munching 60 grains of Valium a day and talking to herself in a most alarming way. You must keep your feelings for me in check, Gubnet. Day 7. Nola, we are not amused by your little joke. Seven swans a-swimming is a most romantic idea, but not in the bath of a private house. We cannot use the bathroom now because they have gone completely savage and rush the door every time we try to enter. If things go on this way, the mother and I will smell as bad as the living room carpet. Please lay off. It is not fair. Gubnet. Day 8. Nola. Who the hell do you think gave you the right to send eight hefty maids of milk in here to eat us out of house and home? Their cattle is all over the front lawn and has trampled the hell over the mother's rose beds. The swans invaded the living room in a sneak attack, and the ensuing battle between them and the calling birds, turtle doves, French hens and partridge made the battle of the Somme seem like Wanderley Wagon. The mother is on a bottle of whiskey a day as well as the 60 grains of Valium. I'm very annoyed with you, Gobnet. Day 9. Listen, you louser. There's enough pandemonium in this place night and day without nine drummers drumming, while the eight flaming maids of Milken is beating me poor old alcoholic mother out of her own kitchen and gobbling everything in sight. I'm warning you, you're making an enemy of me, Gobnet. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Frank Kelly's Christmas Countdown. Samuel Madden Sawyer's Bay Dunedin with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani and we've been joined from the Isle of Skye in northwest Scotland by Andy Williamson. That was Blowing Bubbles for Christmas Eve 2021. We hope you enjoyed the show. Dear 12, listen slurry head, you have ruined our lives. The 12 maidens dancing turned up last night and beat the living daylights out of the 8 maids of milking because they found them carrying on with the 11 lords a-leaping. Meanwhile, the swans got out of the living room where they'd been hiding since the big battle and savaged hell out of the lords and all the maids. There were 8 ambulances here last night and the local civil defence as well. The mother is in a home for the bewildered and I'm sitting here up to me neck and birds droppings empty whiskey and valium bottles, birds blood and feathers where the flaming cows eats the leaves off the pear tree. I'm a broken man. Man, come to show noticing. <laughs>
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.